You know, when you stand in the cold out there and you get that grouse to flush and that falcon's coming and it's he's coming and he's still coming and it takes, you know, a good quarter mile for that grouse to be out there for that falcon to come down from 1,800 feet. And now you see this big, giant, explosive, you know, feather and just I mean, the whole thing and the, and the hissing of that bird coming at Mach 1 out of the air. You know, it's just that that is, to me, that's an addiction. Hey, what's up, everyone? Welcome back for another episode of the Falconry Told podcast, brought to you in part by the awesome folks at Marshall Radio's Limetry, the makers of the most carefully engineered and reliable tracking system available. For more information on their products, check out marshallradio.com and also the Falconry Fund. The Falconry Fund is a nonprofit organization dedicated to support and protect the various arts and practices of falconry and the cultural and environmental assets that make it possible. The Falconry Fund seeks to become a vital and effective nonprofit organization based in the U.S. to serve falconers on the North American continent and elsewhere so that this art and practice may be pursued without undue restriction and free from current or potential threats by incompatible human activity. For more information on the Falconry Fund, head to falconryfund.org. So while still in Wyoming, one of the fortunate things that I was still able to do was connect with Vahe. He um, was about, I don't know, probably about an hour and a half north of where I was staying in Rock Springs. And uh, before I finished my contract up here, I was able to connect with him and check out his uh, breeding operation and and get to know him a little bit. And I was really fortunate that I got to do that, being as the weather's so unpredictable and things are just kind of nuts this time of year here in Wyoming as far as uh, just the logistics of being able to get out very much. So um, I really hope that you guys enjoy this conversation. Um, it was really nice getting to meet Vahe and check his place out and uh, see one of his birds fly uh, while I was up there. So I will go ahead and turn things over to the conversation that uh, I had with Vahe. So hope you all enjoy and thank you again so much for joining us. Here we go. Yeah, so I made the well, about hour and a half drive or so up today, um, a little bit north here in Wyoming, and uh, figured I'd come and, and check out Vahe's place and, you know, just kind of meet him for the first time, in which it is nice to meet you for the first time officially. Thank you, um, likewise. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't, um, like I said, I'm pretty sure we haven't um, ever met face-to-face before. I usually remember, you know, um, I don't know. I've, I've gotten the whole familiar face thing before, but, uh, <laughs> but, um, yeah. How long have you been actually in this area? Well, I started coming here in the fall of, uh, 99 or I'm sorry, fall of 2009 or 2010. I started coming here at the beginning. I was coming here just spending a couple of weeks hawking. And then as we got closer to the 2015 mark, I spent, I actually rent a house here in town and i spent the entire winter here four and a half months four and a half months and then um i was here to mid-december went home at the time i was in uh, overton nevada and then i came back january 3rd and i put an offer into buying this place nice so this so the property that you're on now was already existing you didn't have to build it or anything or yeah the house was built in 2011 um originally was on 40 acres and I'm very familiar with the area because I had been here for numerous years and stuff. So it just was a beautiful location that I was very partial to. And it was natural for me to just move right in. 
For sure. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely, um, you know, I mentioned whenever we first, uh, talked a little while ago that, um, you know, the scenery is something that as I've, as I've grown older, I've, you know, I've really come to, to appreciate, um, we have cornfields and rolling hills in Southern Indiana, and that's pretty much it. <laughs> yeah, nothing, nothing crop wise yeah. grows out here. It's just too cold. Sometimes the winters go down minus 43 and that's, it's nuts. Arctic. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I, uh, you know, whenever, um, I was in Montana for about a month before I came down here and, uh, you know, when I arrived up there, it was, well, yeah, it was freaking snowing, you know, that was even in October. Yeah. And I was just like, well, I mean, as nice as the area looks, I don't think I could do the, the minus 1000 degrees, you know, or whatever yeah, during yeah. the winter. I'm, I'm not really sure that's for me. <laughs> yeah. This is a very unusual winter. Uh, it's been very dry. It's definitely a, uh, a droughty year. Yeah. Uh, and I don't know what that's going to do to the game population here, but definitely will impact. Mm-hmm. But normally this time of year, we've already experienced, num- experienced numerous days of minus 30, minus 32. Gotcha. Uh, gotcha. Well, I mean, what do you, um, are you hunting primarily, uh, you know, grouse and stuff around here or? Primarily grouse. Uh, I travel and I do a little bit of sharp tails and prairie chickens in other states. Uh, and my, you know, the duck season here is just about a week, <laughs> a week long yeah. before the water freezes in right. late October. Yeah. Yeah. We kind of, uh, we kind of have that some in Indiana too. We have, um, you know, kind of like a, an extended, like one week season yep, or whatever yep, before. Yep. And then, and it, and it happens to usually be about a week before they just start coming in in mass, yep, <laughs> you yep. know? And, and, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, but you know, this, the, the, the trade-off for this area, at least in my opinion, would just be, you know, getting to live in a, in a super nice, you know, beautiful area, um, you know, year round or whatever. But I, like I said, I'm, I'm still not a hundred percent sure I could do the, uh, you know, the, the super cold, but, yeah. uh, but to each you. their own, you know? Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. But, uh, so, I mean, where, um, where did you like live in the, in the U S originally? And, uh, like how, I mean, I, I know you've kind of been a little bit here, there and everywhere, you know, with your, uh, with your, you know, main profession being, you know, the abatement stuff and everything else too, but like where, um, where did you originally live whenever you started getting into all this? Grew up practically in uh, in uh, Los Angeles, and I uh, my background's photography. Um, I did about eighteen years of commercial photography, doing advertising, commercial work, primarily tabletop stuff. And um, it, it, LA is not necessarily a place where long winging is very well promoted, sort of thing environment. <laughs> right. So I was traveling an hour and a half, two hours to you know antelope valley just to balloon and kite birds and after a while that got really old and uh so i wanted to get out of la i could never i grew up in la could never call it home but um in any event uh falconry kind of followed me to la uh prior to overseas when i was growing up um basically at seven years old is when i discovered this journey and it's kind of Yes. Take it, take it, take it over. Hole. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Taken over and the, and the yeah. daggers twisted. It's, you know, <laughs> yeah. the, the it's, kind of, it's kind of an interesting yeah. story how, my, how I got into it. Uh, my brother who's four years older than me and myself were always, you know, animal people. And, uh, I think it was a summer of, I want to say 80 or 81. We went to a, uh, it was during the summertime. So we went to a public swimming pool and on the way back, uh, we came to this bus stop. And in the corner of this intersection was this metal freestanding juice booth. 
And uh, as we're standing in line, waiting our turn to get in there, I kind of peeked through the side of the window and the guy had this, you know, this blender and right next to it is this, this cool little bird on a wooden block. And uh, so I kind of got my brother's attention and was older than me. And we got to the window as we ordered our stuff. We kind of, my brother says, is that for sale? We didn't even know what it was. And the guy said, yeah, the price wasn't outrageous, but it wasn't the kind of money for us to have on us cash money. So uh, we said, don't cancel our order of juice, but keep that as down payment. We'll run home, grab the money, took the bus, went home, grabbed the money, came back, paid the guy up and he put it in a paper bag. And we took the bus, went home and unveiled this thing. Well, later we found out it was a female Eurasian kestrel huh. that had been uh, that had been kind of a misprinted bird. Basically, it fell out of the nest somehow or whatever they however they got it. But they the guy apparently had cut the primary feathers in blood, and so they were oh. all kind of so again not knowing what it was. Right. Now I look back at it now, go what you know that was a hell of a you know. <laughs> trauma for that bird to go through but regardless we had this bird it molted um, two or three times before the feathers started coming in normal they were coming in kind of curly and so we were kids minus the fact that we had seen you know, very brief visuals of movie scenes like Genghis Khan running around with horseback and a big giant eagle and stuff we had this glamorized visual of what it should have been like, but had no idea what equipment was, weight right. management, any of that stuff. Mm-hmm. So then the only thing, only option we had was practice falconry inside the house. So, and again, the other thing was when we, when we brought it home, we, it wasn't exactly welcoming for our parents. They didn't just, you know, they just like, you know, first, yeah. first everyone thought it was an owl because it didn't have, the tail was chopped and the wings were chopped. So it kind of was a compact, this triangular unit, you know, but anyway, so so what, and my parents made it very clear, hey, if you want to feed this thing, you have to provide food because right. otherwise, you know, so, so little did we know that we did the best thing we could for that bird. And we were trapping, um, English sparrows on our flat rooftop at that time. And, um, Perfect. Yeah. yeah, so we'd bring this, bring this. So after a while, after it actually started flying, uh, we'd grab these English sparrows and my brother would hold the bird sitting on, I mean, my parents were very meticulous, but the furniture, you know, we had Italian furniture and so on. <laughs> He'd be sitting on the, on the couch and I'd pull a few primaries from one side and I'd like bag this bird inside of her living room as you know, mom was gone. And of course this bird would come in and I mean, it would be blood feathers and guts and stuff <laughs> hanging from curtain rod. I mean, it was a mess and the bird would get to eat it. Oh, ironically, that bird would cash the rest of it. And sometimes we didn't like sit there and watch the whole thing. We had no idea where it was cached. So a week later, it was, anyway, so you get the idea. Yeah. So mom would come home, raise hell. You can never do this. Okay, mom. Okay, mom. So basically next time she was out, same thing. You know, we just, this went on for years and years. The other thing we did kind of cool was with at certain times of year, there was just like four inch long grasshoppers that uh-huh. would be abundant. So we'd grab them and put the fine piece of electrical tape. I mean, I mean, what we were doing as kids was, what I do in the field now with pigeons, for example, right? Oh. So we'd cut this very thin strip of uh, electrical tape, and if I put it right over the eyes, these four-inch-long grasshoppers would just hover. And it was the most incredible thing, watching this bird just come and snatch him from the air, go right. on top of the... Anyway, so we did this for years and years. Then um, there was a few years where I got detached from falconry because we were traveling. I spent a year in Pakistan, uh, and I had a um, Eurasian... Uh, not a Eurasian, a, a common buzzard. Okay. And yeah. then uh, I spent two years in India and I had a black-shouldered kite. And then, anyway, make a long story short, May of 1988, I arrived here in the U.S. 
with a family. And uh, of course, I was ninth grade. And this is before internet and all that stuff. So we had no way of like finding falconers. So a few years went by, uh, by and then by now I'm in college and I'm field trialing German shorthaired pointers. And I was in a field trial in Buttonwillow, California. And in the evening, it was kind of drizzling rain. We're standing, a bunch of us field trialers standing around the fire. And I overheard a conversation between two other guys, colleagues. And one said to the other, so-and-so's famous um, German shorthaired got purchased by a falconer. And I just about spasmed. That was the first time I had heard the word falconer, right? <laughs> yeah. So, of course, I had to ask who this guy was. And they said, we don't know the name of the guy, but he's a veterinarian out of Ridgecrest, California. That's all I had. Veterinarian out of Ridge, California, falconer. <laughs> so oftentimes I'd go to the Eastern Sierras fly fishing. And that was Ridgecrest was along the way. So one time I was driving, the following weeks, um, I was driving and I got, I would normally f- drive to get to Ridge, uh, to Eastern Sierras to fly fish first, first light. Mm-hmm. And so I got to reach Crest. It was 4 a.m. It's two and two and a half hours short of getting to Bishop or Mammoth Lakes. And uh, anyway, I, I remember pulling to the first gas station, which was closed at, at you know 4 a.m., whatever it was. And there was a phone booth. This is before cell phones, of course. And there's a yellow page, a copy of yellow page hanging on a chain. Uh-huh. And I don't know what I was thinking, but instead of like going through it, and finding the page, I just yanked the whole thing off the chain. Basically, I took it with me. <laughs> so the following morning, after I fly fished in the morning, during noontime, I was having my lunch, sitting on a park, or not a park bench, but a camping campsite bench. And I came to the page where it was veterinarians out of. And anyway, so I went to a pay station, a pay phone station, and I started calling. And after I think I called the third or fourth um, operation, they said, oh, that's not us. That's Jeff Novak at Rosemont Animal Hospital or whatever it was mm. so I called him called the place and they wouldn't touch put me in touch with him directly because you know he's a busy guy doing sure it. yeah so anyway I, I they, the lady said if you leave a number we'll have him call you back so I'm standing there in a cold f- freezing <laughs> by this it, finally he called back and he invited me and of course at that time I was very well in my photo um, photography career so my idea was that if I find falconers, I'm going to start a, a photo essay, a book project. So I told him about that, and he was happy to entertain it. So I went there, photographed him. He was flying chucker in the desert. And so at the end of the session, I had photographed him and stuff. I said, are you the only falconer in the U.S.? He said, no. I, in fact, California Hawking Club is meeting in Bakersfield at the Double Tree in whatever, two weeks from now. So, of course, I went there a couple of weeks from that point, and uh, I got out of the, I remember the scene when I stepped out of the car, and they were like, couple hundred birds on the lawn and i mean every from goshawks to kestrels to merlins i mean i was like a kid in a candy store sure so the, the networking started there and of course the following day the sky trials happened on saturday so that was a that was for me that was something i had never experienced and really hooked my attention and then again talking to other people they said well the utah sky trials is coming up in about three weeks from now in february so of course i went to that and anyway so my journey started with you know getting my a, a good load of eye full of candy as far as the sky trials and high flying long wings and stuff which is what really I'm, I'm that's all i do these days i've never flown a sipiters i had in my apprentice years back in the day i flew some um you know dirt hawking stuff you know butales but since then i've been just a long winger cool yeah i was uh, that was going to be my next question which you know you just you just answered it was I mean, have you always been primarily a long wing person or, you know, have you flown, um, 
you know, many of the other types of, of species, but I mean, is this, if you, if you couldn't fly long wings, just out of curiosity, I mean, I know you've been in, in the, the long wing realm, you know, for so yeah. long now, but I mean, is there anything else that you would, you would rather, um, fly if you, if you had, if you couldn't fly long wings or, um, no, because again, I don't mean to be offensive to anyone, to each his own, whatever rocks your world, as far as falconry goes, whatever. You like what you like. Yeah, I exactly. Mean, but yeah. to me, anything short of long winging is like watching paint dry. <laughs> <laughs> I understand. You know, when you stand in the cold out there and you get that grouse to flush and that falcon's coming and it's, he's coming and he's still coming and it takes, you know, a good quarter mile for that grouse to be out there for that falcon to come down from 1800 feet. And now you see this big, giant, explosive, you know, feather and you just, I mean, the whole thing and the, and the hissing of that bird coming at Mach 1 out of the air, you know, it's just, that, that is, to me, that's an addiction. Yeah, no, I, I understand. Like, you know, there's, I mean, predominantly where, where I live, um, you know, we, we pretty much primarily have, um, you know, cottontails and squirrels. Yeah, and, absolutely. I, and I mean, for me personally, you know, red tails on rabbits, anymore for me is about the same, yeah. you know, watching paint dry kind of thing Teach their own, you know, yeah. it's whatever. Um, you know, I mean, the guys that I hunt with, um, still love, you know, there's a few of them that still love doing that primarily. If we're all out, I have, have no problem beating brush, you know, for yeah. somebody yeah, else. I'm the same bird, way. You know? I mean, I, I, I um, love it all. It's all, it's all in the name of falconry, right. conservation, all that stuff. But, yeah. but, but if I me, had to, yeah. if I had to, if, the, if you said long winging was out of question, mm -hmm. I'd say I'm quitting falconry because that, yeah. that there's no other for me. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, and I, I get it. You know and, I mean? and, and to answer that question that you just mentioned, as far as being where you are and fly what you, what you fly, mm -hmm. I moved because I wanted to fly what I fly. Mm -hmm. I moved out of Los Angeles because there was no game. Right. There's, I mean, there's a few duck ponds and some of them, depending on where you are. And I think things are changing because a lot of good, lot of good long wingers are moving out of LA, but sometimes you show up at a pond, there's two car, two falconry cars ahead of you. And it's just a turnoff for me. That's like disgraceful yeah. to the sport. I want to be, I want to feel my shrine. I want to be one with that environment, with that falcon, with that dog. You know, it's, for me, it's just, it's just, it lower, it waters it down. And I don't want to experience that. To me, it's just too sacred to be. Yeah, I, I totally get it. And, um, you know, I, I totally understand for that, how that type of, um, you know, mentality and, and approach um, this area would be perfect. <laughs> you know, yeah. I and mean, again, it, it fits, it's a very yeah. short season out here, uh -huh. uh, on a bad year, which th this year, this year is not particularly a bad year, but on a bad year, the snow is too thick. So out here, my falconry season, if I'm staying local starts at September 1st, grouse openers, and it will end usually by the first week of November. It's usually it's too, too thick. And then I travel to other places, Montana, Nebraska, Kansas, whatever it may be. But you go where you have to go if if you need to that you know satisfy that itch. Sure, sure. Yeah, I mean it's. Uh, I mean I've gone out west, you know, a few times to to hunt jackrabbits, and you know, I mean you just yeah you, uh, you basically like you just you just summed it up. I mean if if you want to um, pursue a particular um, type of falconry and a particular type of of quarry, then yeah, you just you don't really have a choice. You know, there's there's not really much of a point in um, you know, trying to do a particular, you know, type or style or whatever, if you're not willing to, to make the extra efforts to, to do what you need to do to Absolutely. be successful doing yep, it. Yep. So, but yeah, so, I mean, how, how many years total now have you been a falconer? Well, if you consider from seven years old now is I'm, I'm 46 now. So, uh, but I don't know if you call, you know, all of all those years were kind of like 
I would say the early years were more of a, you know, attention grabber right. sort of years. But mm-hmm. here in the U.S., I think I started in 2000 or 99. Okay. Um, and uh wasn't until like 2005 that I really... I mean, I've ruined my life for the sport. Falconry is the, <laughs> I mean, I life pivots around falconry and there's no other way. Yeah. yeah. And so 2010 is when I was, I'm given that I was in the indoor environment f- doing, you know, not artificial light photography with strobes and stuff in a concrete building day in and day out. I was kind of burned with that. And so a pr- few years prior to that, I heard about this old abatement thing. Mm-hmm. And so in 2010, I decided that I was going to pursue that as a full-time career, okay. which was kind of a shocking, you know, news to my parents. And at the time I was married and stuff. But um, anyway, so I, I closed the studio in 2010 and started started Falcon Force. And it's been probably the best choice I made in my life. Well, that's good. Yeah, I mean, Combine I, the two of them. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I get it. You know, if, um, if someone told me right now that I could uh, maintain... Um, you know, my same standard of living right now, doing something else other than, than healthcare, I'd probably make the jump yeah. in a heartbeat right now. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, I mean, um, there's something to be said for sure for, for being able to kind of merge, you know, the, the two things that Absolutely. you like to do the most and have your, you know, life revolve around, um, you know, to be able to make a living doing it. So, um, but yeah, so I mean, out of curiosity then, um, I mean, you mentioned the sky trials and, mm-hmm. um, and stuff before also kind of how that was initially something that initially piqued your interest, at least here in the U S getting into, I mean, how many times have you, uh, participated in that? Uh, I think I've been very active. I, I, I probably started that participating from 2006, uh, onward, uh, 2007 onward. And I think, um, probably the last sky trials I flew was. 2017, if I'm not mistaken, um, I've kind of been, I've kind of been keeping my distance uh, from it for a couple of years now because there were certain things that I was not agreeing with, right, right, as far as how they were managed and what the objectives were and so on, mm-hmm. and so things were getting diluted. So I kind of, for lack of better description, I kind of. Just dropped out. Part of part, yeah. yeah. I mean, I'm very passionate about it, but I, I love to see the scene become what it was 20 years ago. But it's unfortunately not the case. Well, just I mean, so so describe the scene from 20. I mean, like you know, so just to give you, I mean, since this is the first time that that we're meeting, you know, yeah. and kind of talking through. I mean, I've only really, um, I, I got into the sport about 2014, 2015. So I haven't really been super involved, um, you know, for for you know, but five or six years now ish. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so it's always interesting for me to hear how things were, you know, like from, from guys that were in it, you know, a couple decades or so ago or even longer. I mean, so, I mean, how, what, what were the differences then? I think it, first, let me, let me disclose something. It takes a lot of effort and energy organization to put sky trials on. Sure. So I have those who organize sky trials have all of my respect. Mm-hmm. I have organized sky trials both for California sky trials and for um, the um, Las Vegas Invitational sky trials for a couple of years. But so I, I don't mean to knock anyone or hurt anyone's you know feelings by saying certain things. Sure. But, yeah. But so if I if I could mention a few things that would be as far as in my opinion shortcomings. Everything involves. Everything involves for 
re reasons, good or bad, whatever, limitations or whatnot, resources. But the things that unfortunately have happened to the main Sky Trials venues is, first of all, the, the better participants have kind of retired and moved on, which has caused, um, which has caused basically people entering Sky Trials who are not of the caliber that they were 20 years ago. Mm. So what that does is, in order to maintain a, maintain a, um, um, what's the right word, an event, you have to either lower the standards or, or reject people in order to get that core group who are, okay, so let me backtrack for a second. Sky, what are Sky Trials? And why is it that I'm interested in Sky Trials? Sky Trials is one event that you can get the top 15 falconers nationwide have them fly birds and expose the general public and or the up-and-coming falconers who would never be able to go out and watch these birds, watch these guys and their birds fly. Mm -hmm. In one arena, fairly similar circumstances, weather changes, times of day changes, and so on. But you get to see different people's style, training style, the way they carry themselves, the way they work their dog, whatever it may be. But it's, to me... What Sky, what Sky Trials did to me is the, is the inspiration of the benchmark it, it kind of put, in, put on early on in my career. And I wanted to be as good as some of these guys that I was inspired by. So what's not happening now is that it has become either a moneymaker and or an event where standards have been so lowered in order to just keep it going. You know, whether it's a matter of organizers are burnt out and they're just you know the attention factor is not there or it's not tailored specifically to the participants it's tailored just for spectators you know at, at one time at the utah sky trials we'd have a tent set up with multiple um, um vendors from all over the world that would come and i mean there's so many people going to the sky trials they had basically an indoor facility sort of thing where you could go and look at marshall stuff and look at you know what whatever it was um mike's falconry i don't think they were around at that time but so you. you get you get the idea mm -hmm. sure yeah. but so you know it's, and, and and you'd have six to eight hundred people sometimes at the utah sky trials at the big events you know but unfortunately that's not the case anymore um Again, time, times have changed, but, but the reality is that I would love to see things go back to a little bit more higher standard, let, the, let it become an inspiration again, let it become an upper look up to sort of thing. By lowering the, but, uh, the, 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 um, lowering the standards, you're, you're bringing in crowds that are kind of proud to fly the sky trials by the fact that I'm, I'm flying sky trials, eating off of the kind of like the, that tier of what these people were, the competitors were, you know, two decades ago. And, and unfortunately, the, but the quality of the birds, the quality of the falconry and the training methods are not the same. So it kind of has, that's my personal opinion. I'm nobody, of course, I'm just, I, you know, I'm happy to participate when I can and, and, and pull back if it's, if it's not agreeable with me. And again, I don't, I don't, I'm in no authority in any way, shape or form to. Sure. Well, I mean, you know, like if, well, I mean, and just to, you know, clarify too, I mean, if I was to like, so if I was to do a sky trials, um, you know, of course in a, in a year where everything's not, you know, shut down or, <laughs> or canceled or whatever, uh, you know, if I decided to participate in something like that, you know, I in no way would go into it considering myself 
to be, you know, I mean, I, I know that, that there's uh, just a whole metric ton of things that I don't know that the guys, you know, like yourself or, you know, uh, been doing it for such a long time, you know, would, um, you know, that, that they know, I mean, there's a lot that I don't know that they would know. Yeah, and, yeah. you know, like, I know for me, if, if I went into it, it honestly, I would approach it almost more of a, um, you know, learning experience yeah. than anything else. Yeah. Um, you know, it would, it would be hard for me, um, you know, to go into it. I think thinking with like a mindset of, uh, you know, just doing it because I felt like I was just proud to be doing it, yeah. you know? Um, but at the same time, you know, I guess it's, it's hard for, for, um, you know, like, uh, guys in my generation or, you know, that, that still aren't, you know, that still are learning constantly. And I mean, you, you always are learning, you know, but, um, you know, it's hard for me to know what it's like, what, what, what's, what are some of those standards then that, that used to be in place? I mean, I only, I've only brushed over like, like, you know, using yeah. the Utah sky trial rules and stuff, for example, like, you know, the, the, the different criteria that you, yeah, that your yeah. bird has to meet. And so, I mean, how, how, I mean, how have those so, the criteria changed? So though? like my background, I shouldn't say my background, but I've done field trialing pointers. Mm -hmm. So if you look at the way that scene is operated, you have like qualifications and then those who you have to get so many qualifications in order to go to the nationals, for example, you mm -hmm. cannot just show up and say, I'm going to run my dog in the nationals. So with that said, I'm not saying it's, we're, we're the same number of people. We're not, you know, our sport is much, much smaller. Sure. But like back in the day, if you were a falconer and the big boys were competing, you'd be intimidating going out there, cutting your bird. I'm not saying this from like a very, it, just take it from a humble point of view. Sure. But you'd be in, intimidated going out there, cutting your bird loose with that many eyes watching and or standing rubbing shoulders against the big boys because you had to meet for example a an 800 foot pitch okay like that 800 foot yeah. pitch unfortunately at the utah sky trials is brought is brought down for the last two or three years to 300 feet oh was it 300 300 yeah. feet okay you know 600 was like the benchmark but they couldn't meet three 600 foot pitches more more than one or two falconers per event so they lowered it to 300 just to bring in more people right you know it's a, so then it's so anyone practically could fly a bird at a 300 foot pitch so but it dilutes down that visual where you look at that go shit this is like an event this <laughs> yeah. is what i want to be right you know what is this guy doing how is he training birds that are taking a pitch of 1800 feet and just rocking it so so that's what i'm talking about you know the with of course with the with a with the martial telemetry a gps unit for example mm -hmm. things are now factual information back in the days we had a guy with two or three guys with laser rangefinders you had a guy who had a, who had an angled um what do you call that angleometer uh so they would divide the angle so there were all these mathematical equations and then a lot of it was then at the judge's discretion at the end of the equation, you know what I'm saying? Now you right. have very set information of where your bird is and all that stuff. Yeah. So we have, a, we have great technology, but it's not unfortunately often applied to making the event superior to the previous year. Right. No, I, I understand that. You know, I mean, I just, like I said, it's, um, you know, I mean, so I, I mean, out of curiosity then, 
Um, I mean, the most of the guys that participate, did they have birds almost exclusively that they kept more or less for, for sky trial purposes or, and then they, you know, separate from their hunting birds? No, then, I mean, back in the days, just about everyone who participated was a game hawker, but, gotcha. but there was more opportunities available for people to fly, you know, a lot of California guys, for example, back in the eighties and nineties, um, a lot of people, a lot of falconers would come from California. A lot of a huge force of sky trials falconers would come out of California. In fact, they had this song that they would sing, all the California guys to intimidate the, the Utah guys. It was this rivalry and stuff. You know, it was a, it was a very cool visual. I mean, there was like competition, but friendly at the same time. We were all friends at the end of the day. But because of certain types of limitations and lifestyles, people wanted to see the best in their falcons. And it's still mm-hmm. the case probably now. But what I'm not seeing, and of course, back then we were ballooning, we were kiting. We were, so nowadays everyone's practically droning yeah. because helium is like $400 at, at yeah, $219.10. You know? so, yeah. yeah, I'm still doing helium and stuff. But regardless, uh, but, so th- we have more technology now between knowing where the bird is, how high that bird is. We have drones. We have all these really cool stuff. Your bird gets the bait. You push a button. That drone parks on top of your car while you're out there getting your bird that's coming down. There's a lot of things that we have, cool things that we have. But I think it's made people lazy. People are no longer hungry about that, pushing the limits to the, you know, to the far ends of the spectrum. Sure. Well, and, and you know, I mean, just in my ultra super narrow you know limited yeah. um, experience with bigger long wings and um you know i mean just just getting a long wing going at least just from what my experience is and it could be completely wrong i mean i don't um you know have a wide enough experience base yet with it but i mean all there's there's so many extra little quirks and steps it's to get a long wing going um you know it, it's i i think that not only, you know, is, is it, I don't, you know, a situation even as much like a hunger type thing, but you have to have that much more drive and that much more it has to wake you up in the morning. Yeah. yeah. You really have to want yeah, out <laughs> to here, fly long wings out here to, in the morning. Sometimes it's, you know, minus 22 and my fingers are blue Yeah, and I'm trying to like put the whole balloon rig together out there Yeah, and I've jumped in the guard, wore my hands, go back out there. But you know, I'm not saying it's the only way of training. But it's it's produced results for me, so I stick to it. Yeah. And again, there's a lot of falconers out there, all of incredible. But I think they've gotten turned off to the sky trials thing because of how it's kind of been diluted down. And those who are really good falconers now, they just don't care for it. Where at yeah. one point they were all like, it was like any one event where you could really like see who's flying what. And I'm in a very positive way. And the comp- competition and stuff is all beautiful but you get to see who does what and how they do it and ask questions and see how the back of their car looks like how they're rigged up how their dogs are and it just the whole thing is very to me it's any total inspirational venue you know what i'm saying yeah for sure yeah i mean i can understand if it's you know i mean like you said times change and you know the way things evolve sometimes yeah. you know it sometimes it evolves to not be someone's certain cup of tea anymore yeah. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that yeah, absolutely um but, you know, I mean, with the way things are, I mean, sometimes you have to adapt certain things, um, you know, to to keep it going or sometimes yeah. it just dies, you know, too. So, Absolutely. You know, yeah. But, but yeah. So, well, I mean, so how did you, I mean, how did you place? I mean, how did, how did you do in the times that you, you know, competed in those then? I mean, uh, you... I've done good. I mean, I've, I've 
again, the idea is not to necessarily win for me. It's just to 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 you know go out there and see who else does what. And oh yeah, I meant I meant more like you know what was the what was the best pitch that you ended up oh, getting. Oh, like, um, what, what I mean, was, I've I've yeah. had I think at the. This is kind of bragging. I don't need to do this. Oh, no, I'm, I'm just curious. Yeah. Cause like I said, I mean, yeah, I, I mean, one year, I think, um, uh, at the California Hawking club meeting, I think it was 2012. Um, I entered two birds. Um, and I think one bird was at, uh, 1680 feet, but, uh, after he stooped the pigeon put underneath the car, I could not get the bird to come down. So I, I kind of, <laughs> I kind of took third place with that bird, uh, because, I went into overtime and I was, I remember throwing this dead carcass and the bird just wanted that pigeon so bad wouldn't come down. Uh-huh. Um, so then the bird that I had my second bird flew, I think it took two, um, 1,288 feet. He, he took first place and he feathered the pigeon and so on. And, um, so there's all these, you know, all these things. It's just, right, right. It, it doesn't apply to one, one item and one, one way of winning. But, uh, but anyway, just, yeah. Oh, what, what, um, I mean, what exact, uh, I mean, were you flying hybrids? Were you flying? I've always, what, what? I've always flown hybrids. I think in 2006, I pulled a female peregrine out of, uh, out of Arizona, wild taken bird. Okay. And, uh, that was my only pure peregrine that I have flown as far as game hawk and, or sky trials bird. Uh, in fact, I didn't, I never flew that bird. That was like my entry to like really getting this whole, getting the birds to fly high sort of thing. Okay. Uh, and then from the following year onward, I just, it's been hybrids for me all the way. Cool. Yeah. I mean, do you prefer, uh, I mean, do you prefer mainly jure peregrines or primarily jure peregrines? Yeah. I'm not, you know, there's subtleties in subspecies of peregrines in the jure. Um, so I, I mean, I've probably, I go through two or three birds a year. Um, this year I, unfortunately I started with three birds. I'm down to one. I one just didn't have what I wanted to see in a bird. One got killed by, um, uh, a golden eagle. Oh, three, three or four weeks ago yeah. and then i've got one bird today probably after this we'll go fly this bird for the last time the U.S. sky trials got canceled this year not that i was gonna go but yeah. that was kind of <laughs> something i was looking up to maybe right uh, but we'll make the fast last flight this is mid-january now i don't need to push him any harder this year the, the jackrabbit population here in wyoming is very low mm-hmm. with that said uh, the eagles are down here and they are looking for opportunities to feed and anything that moves you know, Yikes. it's fair game. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I've seen them take adult antelope out there. Wow. Um, very graphic visuals of, you know, one, ant- one particular female, 2017 was still standing on, you know, four hoofs. And while it was standing female Eagle, what was on its back, eating off of, eating off of the side. <laughs> oh, wow. I mean, it was like really weird, you know, horrific sort of visual, but they wow. have to survive. Yeah. And the yeah. jackrabbits are not out there. They're looking for, you know, just, just about anything. Yeah, I mean their their world is a lot more a lot more brutal. Absolutely, for sure. and I mean, and baldies are bald eagles are just as in fact baldies in my opinion are faster flyers. You normally when someone says bald eagle, my my visual is either canoeing on a lake and a baldy takes a, a, a trout and flies off, and or you find you turn the corner and there's a roadkill and there's two baldies sitting on it. But watching a bald eagle fly down a jure peregrine hybrid. At the, basically at the physical condition of ballooning and kiting 4,500 feet on daily basis is kind of like watching a Jure Peregrine Falcon at the Sky Trials served a racing homer. I mean, the flight style is basically just until they are mentally defeated and or they, if they can escape, they do. But so oftentimes they'll be mentally defeated and just, they just snatch them on the ground. That's a that's a hell of a visual. Yeah, my God, it's <laughs> it's not a good visual at all. Yeah, <laughs> I was going to say that's one of those um, that's one of those visuals that would make you uh, 
pucker for sure if oh you're the one God. if it's your bird and you're sitting there watching it happen <laughs> i can only imagine yeah. but i mean if you were i mean just hypothetically though if you were watching something like that i mean if you were just in the perfect right place at right time to see that happen with like a, a wild bald eagle in a wild you know say like a peregrine or something just for whatever circumstances cause it to happen i i can see what would be pretty neat to watch then but man yeah i mean the the sad thing is that you're standing on the ground and oftentimes when this last one i had uh unfortunate case but um basically i was but the bird was i was ballooning the bird and the bird was about 16 1700 feet and climbing and all of a sudden this eagle comes and is able to climb up there and then once the Jir peregrine becomes level with it they have to escape they now that they're at a danger so um, of course, here I am down on the ground swinging a lure and, you know, yeah. trying to bird just come at my feet. You know, of yeah. course, that's not the case because they're so, you know, freaked out with the whole thing. Right. And uh, you have, you can, there's not much you could do. You just stand there and just. Well, yeah, I mean, I mean, ultimately it doesn't, it doesn't matter what the circumstances yeah. is. As soon as, just, uh, as soon as that bird leaves the fist, you're powerless, yeah, man. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I, man, boy, that's a, uh, that's a visual I'm probably going to think about for a little bit. And I, I, Wow. Yeah. I, I can only imagine yeah. that's, that's nuts, but okay. So, I mean, we've already, we've kind of talked about, you know, your intro, your sky trials experiences. Um, and you mentioned earlier, you know, about, um, you know, your abatement company. I mean, what, what happened along your path kind of to, um, make you decide, okay, this photography stuff being in this room for, you know, days at a time, whatever it sucks. It's not for me you know, I, I'm going to transition into abatement. And how did you you go about doing that? I, mean, I think in 2018, 2010, I was, at that point, I was kind of, that was my last year that I was full-time photographer. And um, um, basically, I think I had a bad experience with an art director who was, I was assigned, I was, I was photographing for an advertising agency in LA, and I was assigned as a young art director and who I was hired for a specific reason. My style of photography was what they hired for. And the entire evening I was photographing with this girl, um, she tried to art direct away from what I was hired for in the first place to the point where I photographed it. And back then I was basically photographing uh, four by five view cameras. And of course we'd shoot Polaroids as, as test sort of shots, black and white Polaroids, and I'd, we'd turn it over, art director would sign the back of it. So I had her sign it off, off she went. And I think we finished the shoot at about 8 p.m. Well, I, then I shot the, then I made the photograph the way it should have been shot. And I was up until 1 or 2 a.m. So the following day, film was processed. I went to the agency, I laid it down. And um, of course, they all gathered and they were looking at the photography that she had approved. And then on the far end of the light box back then, this is analog, right? Far in the light box, I'd put, I, I put the four pieces of transparencies that I shot the way it should have been shot. And pretty soon... The, art, the senior art director kind of glanced back and forth and what's this? Oh, I'm glad you shot, you shot variations. I said, no, no, this is not a variation. It's on my time. And this is a separate shot. If you want to buy it, it's going to be a full, you know, day rate. Anyway, make a long story short, I realized that the creative mind needs space to thrive. You cannot choke it and expect, it, expect for it to produce good work, basically. So that was kind of a big slap in the face for me. Um, make a long story short. So I was kind of, this opportunity came where I I picked up two, we were talking about this earlier. For some reason, 
2010. I mean, you could buy Tears of Peregrines for four to 600 bucks. So I picked up two Tears of Peregrines that I was specifically tailoring for abatement work. And um, shortly after, I started working for Tom Savory doing a vineyard uh, in Central California. And then the following year, I did uh, work for, I think, Jeremy Roselle for a short period of time. And then the third year, I had my own contracts because I, you know, I'd meet neighboring farmers and so on. So I do blueberries, cherries, wine grapes. Um, and then we do a bunch of industrial stuff from refineries to um, hotels, resorts, not necessarily, that's, a, that's hospitality, but um, uh, I mean, all sorts of stuff, marinas, you name it. Amusement parks, like SeaWorld's been a contract of mine now for about seven or year, eight years. Um, so it's kind of just broadened up. And uh, just, I mean, looking back, <laughs> I can't, I question why I stayed in photography for as long. I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm, a, I'm, I'm passionate about photography to this day, but, but never once doing the abatement work, it feels like I'm working. Well, I mean, do you think it was more just because that's what your security, you know, was at the, at the time? The um, photography part, you mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I I've mean, got a degree in photography, so yeah. um, I went to private college. Uh, but it just, yeah, things just, you know, we, we live and we learn. We move on. Nothing is permanent. That's one thing, that's for sure. And um, just, it was, it, was, it was a journey that I followed. And at the beginning, you know, it was kind of a joke. My, my parents would even look at me, oh, you quit, you know, you quit that for this right <laughs> playing yeah. with birds how am i yeah. gonna play with birds you know <laughs> so then they realized no this is a real thing now i had employees i had this i had multiple contracts now we're spread between eight states uh, and so it's just you know it's been a great journey yeah no i bet <clears throat> i mean and i i totally understand what you meant too about the whole you know creativity needs room you know, to, to grow and thrive or else, absolutely. you know, you end up just hating yourself. <laughs> I totally get it. I mean, like I said, I've been a, I've been a musician since I was 14 and, you know, initially went to, to school and stuff to do this, all this audio, you know, crap. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but you know, I mean, it's, I, I think probably that's, that's still a big reason to this day. Um, you know, why I haven't made, you know, a switch from, from something else. So, I mean, I, you know, it's just, you, you get used to a certain Absolutely. income and a certain comfort, you know, zone. Yeah, yeah. comfort zone. And, uh, you know, like, like I said, if, 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 if I knew for sure that I could, could make a decent amount of money doing something else at this point, I probably give it a shot just because, yeah. you know, just the way this last year has been, especially for healthcare. Um, but, uh, but I mean, it's, I, I'm always interested to, um, to talk to friends and other acquaintances and stuff that have branched into abatement because it seems like, I don't know, the, the way they've accumulated those um, experiences, contracts, and um, kind of grown into it a little bit has kind of always been a little bit of the same but yet different. So, I mean, I, I wasn't really sure. I mean, how, how hard is it, um, you know, to get some of those those contracts and stuff that you've gotten and I mean, you have to do to, that, it, so it's just like any other industry not every plumber is the same right you got, you got yeah. people that you would trust your you know so anyway it's the same way so the, the at the beginning when i would do a contract oftentimes well this one particular contract i did four other falconers had done it so they gave me basically very little room they said okay we're going to try this for two weeks because i had to convince them that i could do it it was a blueberry farm. 
and they said, okay, just two weeks, just a trial and error sort of thing, because we don't want to spend any more money, and we know it doesn't work. So at the end of two weeks, the, the head CEO of the, of the farm, who was the son of one of the sons, came up to me and says, can you extend for another week? So we extended. Then he came back and said, can you extend for one more week? And by then, he was overlapping my, my grape contract that I had in California. So I had to unfortunately tell him that, and you know that was the end of it. Well, the following year, they called back and said, we'll only do it if you personally will do it. We don't want you to put anyone on this contract. We want no one but you. That's, an, that's a very common thing. Because for me, at the end of the day, it's not about how much money I make. For me, it's a job that needs to be done. And I love to process. I love to, I love to get the job done at any cost. I mean, I'm... <laughs> I'm, you know, it, ruthless. Yeah, it just it, 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 falconry itself is not enough. Sometimes you need pyrotechnics. Sometimes you need this and that, and you know, all sorts of really other aspects that play into it. But just creative, being creative and being open-minded about what else can I do. So you've primarily focused mainly on like the, um, like the ag, you know, type type I, stuff. If or? I'm taking a contract, unless I open a new contract and it's it's a large enough contract that I see. The value of my being, me being there, basically starting it for a few weeks. Like SeaWorld, we started the first five months. I did it myself, along with Becca, um, who was at the time my girlfriend. And then we handed over to multiple different people who came in, and we kind of worked with them. And when we were comfortable, we kind of camped it out. Um, but unless it's unless it is that, and I'm starting a new contract, I'll train somebody. Outside of that, the only work that I personally do is basically ag work. As I mean, I love being in an environment where, you know, vineyard environment, you got beautiful, open, clean air, and it's just quiet. And I'm, you know. Yeah, you're just kind of yeah. me, myself, and I. Exactly. Yeah. And, yeah. You, and basically, practically, you start that car at crack of dawn. You weigh your birds, put them, load them in the car. And that, that, that car is idling from sunup to sundown sometimes for 16 hours. Why? Because it's sometimes 116 yeah, degrees. You and your birds. Yeah, you have birds inside on the back seat that's being converted. So it's a, it's, I mean, you live out of that car. Every three years I go through these Toyota Tacomas. And uh, oftentimes when I bring it to my friend who's a mechanic, he just, he laughs at me. We can't sell this thing. Smells like, <laughs> smells like the sewer. Well, I live out of it. Imagine not changing your shirt for, you know, five months. You know what I'm saying? Because the seat covers basically absorb your, yeah. And then you have birds. Basically, it's a, it's a, it's a muse on wheels. It's a bedroom, an office, a living room where you eat your food. <laughs> so just imagine, I mean, it's, it's a, it's a full-time gig that is very rewarding for me. I love it. I mean, it's one aspect of abatement that I really miss. And when I get a chance, I really, I, I like doing it myself. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, if there's, if there was a particular type, um, uh, how do I want to word this? There's a particular type of abatement that you think needs done across the board pretty much, no matter what, I mean, what kind of, what, what type do you think it would be? Um, I mean, what, what do you see as like the biggest problem, you know, biggest consistently? Pro yeah. Biggest problem is probably agricultural goods, um, blueberries, cherries, wine grapes, uh, honey crisp apples get, get also hit pretty hard cause they're thin skinned. Uh, but there's really no way around it. Blueberries nowadays, sometimes they do it in sort of a larger scale greenhouse type of thing where it, they're in loop in, in, in these hoops and it's a microclimate of its own and hardly ever birds going inside of it uh, unless it's just a front end and so on. But as far as like wine grapes, how do you manage, you know, 2000 foot, a 2000, 2000 acre vineyard? You know, you could net things. 
Um, so just to put things into perspective, kind of, it takes 400, and I've talked to multiple grape farmers about this and come to this conclusion, but it takes $400 an acre to buy the netting material that traditionally they would drape over wine grapes and they clip it at the bottom, you know, just $400 an acre cost of the material, the labor to put it on and the labor to peel it off before harvest. Okay, so if you have a thousand acre vineyard, that's $400,000 worth of abatement. Now there's a problem with that. Oftentimes when they stretch that quarter mesh, plastic nylon mesh over the over the vines, it's pressed against the fruit. So starlings will bind to this netting and eat right through it. Yeah. Anything that's on the surface will get eaten just as hard, right? So you're losing about 25 to 40% of your crops, depending on size of the vineyard. So with us coming in there, we can do the same acreage for about $70,000, for example. So, that, I mean, once it's, it's hard to convince a farmer that this can be done and not have them net the product. Right. Because, you know, the entire year they're working hard for the four, for the four month period of variation and you're convincing them to basically walk out with no pants on basically. Yeah. Right. <laughs> but, but once you convince them, it's a, not a matter of, can it be done? It's a matter of, we need you to do it. We right. need so-and-so. We liked him. We want him back, you know? So it's, yeah, it's a very rewarding experience to, sell that product and then stand behind it like that i bet i mean especially i can see though once they're sold on it i mean just just the i mean my indiana math you know tell me that you know that's a huge money amount of money that you're saving yourself you know if you can you know i you know that's that's a that's a huge amount yeah yeah but see the problem is there's guys who are not so agricultural bird, bird abatement is basically a function of long winging you know, you can have oplomatos maybe, which are long wings, but they kind of fly in the style of a Harris hawk, more or less, off the fist to come back, you know. Yeah. But primarily you're managing that with barberies, tiers of barberies, tiers of peregrines, tiers of red nape shaheens, and crosses off prairies maybe. So to find those good falconers who are confident long wingers in the first place, managing six to eight birds of their own and living out of their truck and stuff, first of all, yeah. <laughs> that gene pool is very small. Right. And, and so it's, it's, it's the hardest part of this, the growth part is finding those individuals who are either single or they're insane. <laughs> you know, they love, they, they love it so much that they can't get, you know what I'm saying? You get or the if idea. they're not single yet, they will be. <laughs> <laughs> well, that too. <laughs> yeah, just obsessed enough that they're... You're living off the road in a trailer for most, most of the times. So right. there's a lot of things. But to me, it's like, I mean, I love to hunt. It's kind of like going to grouse camp. You know, I show up, I set up camp. I've got my weathering yard. My dogs are there to protect the birds when I'm not there. So it's kind of a very, I, I love it. I mean, it's like a glamorous environment for me. And I kind of miss it when I'm, you know. Yeah, no, I can I can understand. You know, I mean, there's, you know, there's, it, like I said, it's just like anything else too, I'm sure, where, um, you know, it's it's not for everyone and teach exactly. their own. Yeah, um, not for but, everyone. But, you know, for, for some reason, you know, I mean, I, I, well, I mean, I can understand though, you know, if, if you just have that experience that that's the final, like the, the, the final straw that broke yeah. the camel's back, so to speak, it's like, I'm not going to work for anybody else anymore. Yeah. I want to do this because it's, I know it's going to, 
you know, it, nothing else is like, well, I'm going to do this at least to give it a shot. You yeah, know, I mean, yeah. worst case scenario, I can always go back to photography or go yeah, back to yeah. whatever. Not an option um, for me. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> See, the thing is that what people don't realize is when you pick up a contract and you, when someone is assigned a contract, whether it's a 12 week contract, 14 week contract, 12 hours a day. Yeah. That means for 12 or 14 weeks at 12 hours a day, you're not, you don't have a day off. Yeah. You don't have a, a weekend. I mean, you are grinding it. Yeah. But of course, there's big money to be made in that short period of time. You can meet your quota in, in a matter of a five-month period, and sure. then you're, you can hawk the rest of the season, you know, for the most part. Sure. But it's, it's, it, it, can be, it can be mentally devastating not having enough time to run to the laundry when you're, you know, that far behind or have to do invoicing when you're on the job site, whatever it may be. But just it's a, it's a grind and a half. But I'm it's sure. a beautiful thing if your heart's into it, you know. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, I think if it was me, I'd have to have a camper or something of some kind. I'd, or you know, at least be able to to escape. You know, to have a shower at least once a week or something. Yeah. See, I, I, I've had I've had campers. I had a I had an airstream. I had an pot and stuff. But that doesn't cut it for me. I want to be able to. The camper life is beautiful because you're right there on site. But oftentimes, I sold both of the campers now. Oftentimes what I'll do is either be camp- camping out of a motel room or I'll rent a house in the vicinity, which means at the end of the day, I can stretch. I have a hot shower. I have internet, you know, all those things. It sounds a lot more appealing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, that's, that's been, it's been really cool, um, you know, getting to, to talk to you and to see your place here for the first time. Um, you know, I mean, just, just real quick before we finish up, um, you know, we, we ask this question a lot commonly too. I mean, just out of curiosity, what was your, I guess either you can pick from either hunting or, or sky trial experience, whatever you prefer. Um, that one, almost every hunter has like that or falconer has, you know, either or has that one experience that they remember that sticks out as like their, their, their favorite hunting experience. Um, you know, favorite bird, whatever the case may be. What's, what's that for you? I mean, do you have like a, a single one that sticks out like a yeah, single story? Uh, we all do, I guess. I mean, there's many memories that I can think of, but, uh, the one that probably oftentimes visits me when I open, when I shut my eyes in the evenings or stare at the ceiling, falling asleep is, uh, a flight I had here in Wyoming with a friend, with a friend of mine, um, uh, I think it was seven or eight years ago, maybe. But uh, I had that um, Fijian Macropus bird wraith that has been one of my key birds in the sky trial scene as well. Uh, and we flew, uh, we had a beautiful point, dog on point and stuff. Anyway, this big giant boomer takes off. And that bird was, this is before Marshall, I think at that point, but he was high, he was very high. But he came down and hit that bird. And, it, you know, a cock sage grouse could be, you know, 4,200 grams or more. Uh, and he cartwheeled that bird out of the air. And when I went there to pick up the bird, he was casually sitting on this bird. But when I picked up the bird after he was fed, both wings were broken at the base. I mean, he must have. And, I, and to this day, the the one phenomenon that I can't wrap my head around is how is it that two two birds, meaning they're made out of hollow bones and feathers and some muscle tissue on top, Hit that damn can heart. collide <laughs> together and like one shatters and the other one, I mean, don't get me wrong, I've had Jure Peregrines hit a Drake Mallard, and uh, this particular bird, uh, Ace, he, he shattered his tarsus into six, six, you know, pieces. He was in a cast for about six weeks and 
healed just fine. In fact, became the nine pound hammer, and and he's he's killed numerous grouse. I sold him last two years ago. But regardless, I mean that happens a lot. But how is it that 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 level of kinetic energy destroys one and the other one survives? Yeah. <laughs> well, because they they keep going through it. You know, it's just kind of <laughs> like you know. Um, martial arts you know breaking boards yeah. or bricks or whatever you know it's kind of the same deal i mean it's as long as you as long as you keep driving through it yeah most of the time you're not going to break your hand yeah and it's just a matter of i guess how, how they hit it and how yeah it's got to be the right angle yeah. and, and stuff too i'm yeah yeah it's it it is amazing especially just just how how loud that hit is oh yeah i mean that the, the more amazing thing is like a jeer parrot that particular bird's like a 720 gram bird and that cockbird was probably 4800 grams 4200 grams in, the, in that neighborhood so imagine i mean the size difference it's like it's like a high school boy going to a, a bar and like trying to get a you know pick a fight with a bouncer that's right. like 300 pounds you know six feet <laughs> yeah. tall you know broad shoulders <laughs> right yeah yeah it's uh not a, usually a good idea <laughs> but no i feel you no that's cool man like i said uh you know it's it's always uh it's always a pleasure kind of getting to uh to know people for the first time and and some of the the favorite podcasts that i've done have been with uh with people that i've actually just met and gotten yep, to know yep, for the first yep. time and, and actually like, you know, the first real sit down conversation I really gotten to have was during the podcast. Yep. So, I mean, it's, it's always cool. It kind of changes things up for, for me a little bit and stuff too. And we're always appreciative of, of the time that, uh, that other fellow Falconers are willing to give and, and everything. So I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing your bird fly here a bit too. And, uh, you know, like I said, thanks again so much for, for taking the time on a, well, I guess a, a Monday afternoon. Yeah. And, My pleasure. You, know. you guys, you guys are doing an incredible program here. I've listened to some of them, unfortunately, not all of them, but, uh, when I'm driving sometimes, you know, going to California here, 17 hour drive, uh, I'll, I'll go to a couple of them to a couple, three of them, but, um, it's really nice to hear, you know, from, you know, people and what they're doing and how people experiences and stuff, you know, those are yeah. memories that, it's always neat hearing what, what makes other people tick. And, 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 and generally speaking, falconers are not the most social species to, to begin <laughs> with, right? So to, to hear their stories without, you know, without yeah. stepping on anyone's toes and yeah, stuff, yeah, but yeah, yeah, positives yeah. and so on. We're, we're a unique and sensitive breed at times. Absolutely. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> anyway, well let's, uh, well, let's get ready to, to head out here shortly. And like I said, thank you again. And I really My appreciate pleasure. it. My so, pleasure. Anytime. All right. Talk again soon. Thank you.